0: Hello everyone, welcome to episode 56 of Destination Disaster, I am your host, Devin Carney. For everyone joining on this episode, this is a direct follow-up episode from episode 55, where we discussed the complex coordinated terrorist attack. I would highly recommend that you listen to the previous episode first, as it provides the context for the content that we're covering this week. Before we jump right in, we're going to cover what a complex coordinated terrorist attack is, following that, we're going to cover the scene management, hospital operations, and finally, what the long-term effects would be following a disaster such as the scenario that we covered. According to the Department of Homeland Security, a complex coordinated attack or complex coordinated terrorist attack is a violent assault or a series of assaults by one or more individuals or groups using one or more types of weapons with the intent to inflict harm on large numbers of people. While these types of attacks often result from various motives including terrorist ideologies, the continued proliferation of CCAs overseas and domestically demonstrates that CCAs remain a concern for the conceivable future. These events have long-lasting effects and consequences in the communities that are involved. When looking at past CCTAs, or Complex Coordinated Terrorist Attacks, we see a shift in social characteristics to include people becoming more wary to travel alone in public, and a heightened sense of surrounding. CCTAs are an evolving and dynamic terrorist threat, shifting from symbolic, highly planned attacks to attacks that could occur anywhere, at any time, with the potential for mass casualties and infrastructure damage. Although some characteristics of a CCTA are similar to an active shooter incident, the complexities of CCTAs may represent additional challenges to jurisdictions. CCTAs require the delivery of community capabilities and resources across a wide range of core capabilities. As I just stated, complex coordinated terrorist attacks utilize smaller group attacks and employee attacks that are similar to that of military or law enforcement. When compared to non-complex terrorist attacks, Those perpetrators tend to strike hard, and strike once, trying to cause as much chaos as possible. CCTAs utilize a more developed planning pattern and includes gathering publicly available intelligence across the internet. This planning cycle allows terrorists to plan diversionary attacks that quickly force law enforcement personnel resources away from planned attack locations. In our scenario, we don't necessarily use a diversionary attack, but a mass attack that quickly overwhelms the local first responder agencies. These initial attacks would have quickly led to mass panic, people attempting to flee, which would lead to traffic jams in opposing directions, and first responders struggling to gain command of the scene. It would quickly lead to a breakdown in communication and allow the terrorists to escape the scene of the attack. Now as we move into the scene management portion from last episode, there were explosives used, and prior to any first responder agency entering that scene, it would need to be safely cleared. This alone could take hours and those who were injured could die. The first arriving ranking officer would assume command of the scene as the incident commander. Each department will in turn assume command and begin relaying necessary resources, and for the purposes of this scenario, activating a mass casualty incident. Now, throughout the world, when we look at mass casualty incidents, there is a process for triaging the injured and deceased. In North America, Specifically, we use the START method, or Simple Triage and Rapid Treatment method. This system allows for quick assessment of all who are injured and deceased. Those conducting triage do not provide treatment. However, can position patients with certain airway maneuvers, place tourniquets on major bleeds, and conduct procedures to alleviate those patients suffering from collapsed lungs where local laws allow. Now, at a triage scene, It must always be within walking distance so that the walking wounded can gather. This means that it should be about 300 meters from the scene of this disaster. There is a classification system or tags that you might commonly see in TV shows. These go green, yellow, red, and black. The green, or walking wounded, means that those are patients with minor injuries and they can evacuate themselves from the scene. Yellow, or delayed, these are patients with non-critical injuries but are unable to evacuate themselves from the scene or have an altered mental status. Red-tagged patients have immediate life-threatening injuries that must be evacuated from the scene as soon as possible. And then finally, black-tagged or deceased or expected deceased, patients who have died at the scene as a result of their injuries or patients that have life-threatening injuries that cannot be saved on scene. Start has also been modified to provide better treatment for children. One such modification is known as jumpstart There are several simple modifications to the adult version. The primary modification for use with pediatric patients is the change to normal respiratory rate. Since children breathe faster than adults, Jumpstart assigns the immediate classification on the basis of respiratory rate only if the child's respiration is under 15 or over 45 per minute. Another change is in the apneic pediatric patient with a pulse. The patient is given five breaths. If they resume breathing on their own, they are tagged as immediate. If they do not resume breathing on their own, they are tagged as deceased. Another needed bit of information is to decide who qualifies as a pediatric patient and who qualifies as an adult. This can quickly be decided by a rapid check for underarm hair development on boys and breast bud or breast development on girls. If the age is known, The age cutoff for child versus adult is 8 years old. As emergency medical service personnel work at the scene, local area hospitals would be alerted and they would in kind activate their mass casualty protocols as well. There are approximately 2,800 staffed beds in the Hampton Roads region in Virginia, three of which have a trauma center designation. These hospitals have more advanced care and specialize in areas such as pediatric care or burns, which in this scenario would have proved beneficial. Most likely, the most severely injured would be transported to these hospitals They can surge their available capacity and provide immediate, life-saving care to ensure survival. Let's cover the trauma center designations quickly for a better understanding. Level 1 trauma centers have an organized trauma response and are required to provide total care for every aspect of injury, from prevention through rehabilitation. These facilities must have adequate depth of resources and personnel with the capability of providing leadership, education, research, and system planning. Level 2 trauma centers have an organized trauma response and are also expected to provide initial, definitive care regardless of the severity of injury. The specialty requirements may be fulfilled by on-call staff that are promptly available to the patient. Due to limited resources, Level 2 centers may have to transfer more complex injuries to a Level 1 center. Level 2 centers should also take on responsibility for education and system leadership within their region. And finally, Level 3 trauma centers, through an organized trauma response, can provide prompt assessment, resuscitation, stabilization, emergency operations, and also arrange for the transfer of the patient to a facility that can provide definitive trauma care. Level 3 centers should also take on the responsibility for education and system leadership within their region. By this point, hours have ticked by at the scene and volunteer organizations begin arriving and include the Red Cross, which can assist with management of the deceased. This aspect of disaster management is one of the most challenging and mentally damaging experiences experienced by those at the scene. The first and foremost priority of responders and volunteers is preservation of dignity of the deceased. The media will be at the scene, as will family members attempting to locate their loved ones. The management of deceased requires extensive coordination while at the scene due to the sheer amount of personnel who responded and who are working to remove the deceased. Due to the amount of deceased at the scenes of the explosions in this scenario, most likely a temporary field morgue would be erected until proper identification and transport could be arranged to local medical examiners' offices or funeral homes. As I stated, this disaster would leave a scar on the community for decades to come. This scenario highlights key flaws in the response and preparedness infrastructure of the Hampton Roads region. It shows that there are not enough alternate routes and not enough security visibility on the interstate roadways. As I stated earlier, diversionary tactics weren't employed during the scenario. However, the mass attacks in Hampton Roads quickly diverted the attention of federal agencies that would normally track these domestic terror groups. However, since this attack was so complex, it required more resources in the field, which pulled away from the available manpower that would normally be surveilling these groups in other parts of the country. This is why it is always important that while we are out in public, our heads remain on a swivel, making sure that we don't become the next target. Here's some information to help identify suspicious persons that could be planning to attack. This is provided by the Joint Counter Terrorism Assessment Team. This information is provided by the Joint Counterterrorism Assessment Team. This information is geared towards identifying someone in your family or friend circle that may have begun the process or completed radicalization. Identifying these behaviors is crucial in ensuring that the person can be de-radicalized in a timely manner before action is taken on their part. The first is identifying behaviors that when taken in context can indicate radicalized individuals are mobilizing, preparing to engage in violence to advance their cause. These behaviors include seeking out training, building capability, and other preparatory behaviors. The below factors drive the mobilization process and may interact to mobilize individuals towards violence. A lack of access to some or all of these factors may cause some individuals to back away from violence or result in individuals changing their plans. The next is a readiness to act. This is individual motivation, an intent that keeps a person engaged and moving towards his or her intended goal. Readiness to act can vary across time and be influenced by multiple factors, including personal will and competence, experiences while in training, and motivation gained or lost as a result of established relationships. The next is Opportunity. This is access to training and resources to provide multiple individuals or groups the chance to take action. This can range from target practice at a local firing range to explosives training with terrorists overseas. Opportunity can also include having available time to engage in violent activities. The internet has become a training ground in itself as access to terrorist training materials has become more accessible. In addition, radicalization can be completely undertaken from one's home. The next is capability. This is training that has prepared an individual to follow through on his or her intentions. The individual's capability also includes his or her educational training and skill set acquired through life experiences. As we see with violent homegrown extremists, these individuals tend to have some form of weapons training that originates from either law enforcement or a military background. Their training makes them a much larger threat as they can then extend the training to other members within this extremist organization. And finally, target selection. Locations that the individual is familiar with because of where he or she lives or works or is interested in because of what they represent, such as supposed economic, political, or military dominance. We have seen recent upticks in mass shootings against churches, temples, and supermarkets, where large gatherings of individuals are presumably gathered. These targets are generally not protected by armed security and have multiple routes of ingress and egress following an attack. Please, if you know someone who looks as though they may be going through this process in your family or your close friend group, please alert your local FBI field office. There are special agents trained in identifying an extremist and can provide rapid assessment to determine if this person poses a risk to the general public. This scenario was created to show you that there are thousands of targets that exist within one community that homegrown violent extremist groups can target. The availability of training materials and encrypted communication channels makes it challenging for surveillance agencies to conduct effective operations 24-7. The scenario encompassed a lot of different attack scenarios, such as explosive detonations, mass attacks against civilians, and attacks on critical infrastructure. These types of attacks can't happen anywhere, any day, and at any time. This is where you and your eyes come into play. If we as a community remain vigilant, the number of attacks can be reduced by simply calling 911 if you notice something suspicious. I'm only going to state this once. Do not go into public and start profiling people. This is not the time and place for it, and please only call law enforcement if you believe a real threat exists. This includes seeing a certain vehicle making consecutive passes past points of interest, such as churches, temples, or even supermarkets. If the vehicle has all markings removed. This is another indicator that an individual could be planning an attack, because the first thing the dispatcher will ask for is the make, model, and color of the vehicle when you call to report. If you are in public when an attack occurs, Quickly locate your nearest emergency exit and get out of the building as fast as possible. Do not try to be a hero. I'm gonna repeat that again. Do not try to be a hero. Once outside, call law enforcement and allow them to contain and dispatch the threat as they are trained to do so. If you are outside and are being fired upon, quickly locate the nearest hardened piece of shelter that you can locate and remain quiet until the threat flees the area or is contained by law enforcement. If you are in a crowd, try to remain in a location that provides a quick escape should an attack commence. Once again, do not try to be a hero here as terrorists are known to stage secondary attack vehicles such as explosives or suicide bombers within the crowd. Be sure that the first priority is escaping the scene of attack and finding safety for you and your family. Communities that experience terrorist attacks never truly heal and show some form of scarring decades after. The Hampton Roads region would be no different, and would suffer for years following this attack, having to relive the explosions and death as motorists travel between cities, having to use the very same tunnels where thousands lost their lives. Scars would run deep throughout the communities as citizens struggle to understand why the attacks even occurred, and why more wasn't done to prevent them. Each individual will perceive this attack differently, which is why resources would need to be available for years following a shock can hinder an individual's perception for months or even years. Post-traumatic stress disorder would more than likely be one of the main psychological disorders suffered by many of the survivors and by families who lost their loved ones. This scenario is not meant to highlight death and chaos. It is only meant to show the response aspect and the complexities associated with the attack. Next season, we're going to solely focus on terrorism and its evolution through history. We're going to study some of the earliest known forms of terrorism and what it resembles today in our post-9-11 landscape. We'll study the effects of the communities involved and the changes needed to combat both terrorism at home and abroad. I want to thank everyone who listens to this show and has continued to support it through its evolution. If you liked this episode, please be sure to rate it 5 stars on whatever streaming platform that you use. Please check out the merch store that is linked in the show notes below. Until next time, this has been Destination Disaster.